Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Focus on Albany. I'm Cynthia Poor. And my guest today is Greg Sheldon. And Greg Sheldon created the Albany Victory Gardens. So, Greg, how long have you been doing the Albany Victory Gardens? And what gave you the idea to do this? Well, in one sense, uh, this is just a continuation of a much longer process that members of our organization have been involved in um, individually and through our families, really for generations. Um, One of the the key individuals in helping to frame this project is Joseph Schaller. And uh, Joey, as we lovingly call him, he comes from a family of farmers uh, who, if you're familiar with Hoffman Park over on McCarty Avenue, right over by the entrance to 787 in the throughway, that used to be Schaller Farms. So that used to belong to his grandfather, and uh, that was one of the sites of the original Victory Gardens in the South End, uh, accessible to you know all of the Second Avenue uh, neighborhood. And, and we've actually met people who were, you know, obviously young kids back then who remember being able to get food beyond just what they had ration stamps for and that they were able to survive and, and really thrive well because they had chickens and all the vegetables and things that were coming out of their victory garden right there on shallow farms. So Joey is, um, is one of the key members of our organization for the management and development of this project. And it was uh, together with him that we identified the site uh, while we were in the neighborhood. We said, hey, there, here you got four or five vacant lots all together. That just looks like a parking lot. It's not doing anything. This could be a great source of vitality. Um, and inclusion for the community, an incubator space to grow the kind of community relationships and community health equity that we wanted to develop. So the Albany Victory Gardens, you grow vegetables, and from the time that they're harvested, what happens? So we work with each individual urban farmer, which is a person that comes to us uh, through the neighborhood, just basically about maybe 20 of the different gardeners that are active right now at the Albany Victory Garden site live right on the block. So um, it, it's a very community-level sort of uh, experience. And what we do is we focus in on the capacity development to really help train um, farming technique and and that goes all the way to the, to the point of the market. So my wife and I, and I have Jody here with me. Hi, Cynthia. We're both Farm Security Modernization Act farm trainers. And we bring that, that skill and that resource uh, into the capacity development model that we use to, to create urban farmers that can produce food for themselves, uh, to eat, to share, or to sell. So at the point of harvest, when people are selecting the, the fruit and the foods that are, that are ripe and, and ready for consumption or ready for market, they can bring it 
literally about 100 feet away from where the gardens are, and we have a garden market. Uh, at that garden market, they can sell the food that they've produced, and then that keeps the money from the sale of the produce in the hands of the farmer where it should be, and the food and the money both circulating within the community-level economy. And that's one of the tenets of how a sustainable um, community can function and also how a community can grow. Has uh, the fact that you're keeping the currency within the city of Albany, has it made a big difference in people's um, ability to survive? Well, that's that's kind of hard to to measure right now, especially with this project so much in its infancy. But what I will say is we we prepared this project to address any eventuality and and that's exactly what we got with the total economic collapse with the mm -hmm. uh coronavirus pandemic and everything happening right here uh you know on year on year three of the project we really got tested and i think that what we've seen is that we've we we've really prevailed as a community um one of the things that you saw happen early on was bringing in more new gardeners to share space with existing gardeners to help create more food access. We had the largest bump in um, individual participants this year in, in a way that was uh, really beautiful because it was very decentralized. You saw one-on-one -on -one existing gardeners um, sort of mentoring new gardeners to produce food, or let's call it emergency food. And then what, what happened in, in the second phase, as we moved really into the summer season, was the gardeners, the urban farmers together, uh, as a committee, decided to take this, this garden market that I was telling you about, and they converted that into what we're calling the pandem pandemic produce pickup. So mm -hmm. the, the sale of produce that the gardeners were um, uh, realizing and the buy-in that they had at a community level was enough to bring five or six individual urban farmers to come volunteer every day with no pay to serve the needs of the most affected members of their community. So I think what I'm saying is we've created a community level resource base where we have individuals that are now tied in to uh, community nutritional access, food access, and even to the point of putting themselves on the front lines without looking for recompense to make sure that we're taking care of needs at a community level. So the success of the food production activities wasn't just in the production of food, but also in the production of community relationships and a community-level resource base to help deal with overcoming the burden of food insecurity in an emergency situation. COVID has, has turned our world upside down, and there's been reports on TV of people who are in great need of food, you know, um, 
it's really amazing. People who never experienced hunger before are uh, really hurting right now. So would you say that was the case in Albany? Definitely. Uh, You know, we're serving about 150 different individual families um, each day, and a lot of those families are repeat families from day to day. So we're seeing this core group of food insecure individuals that they tell us their stories day in and day out. And what we hear from them is, I was, I was laid off because the restaurant I worked at closed. Or I'm working, you know, at such and such job, but my hours were scaled back because of regulations about the pandemic. Um, a lot of these people have, um, are, are already um, coming from a place of increased vulnerability due to being frontline workers, um, also doing, uh, uh, owing in part to the lack of nutritional access that they have to begin with, to be able to stay healthy, to be able to fight against illness. So these are concerned people who are dealing with this in a very real way on a day-to-day basis, and they tell us about it. They tell us, my husband was laid off, or, you know, right now I'm carrying my whole family, and there's eight of us, and I'm out of work, and the food stamps aren't enough, and there hasn't been another COVID relief. Uh, you know, these are the things that we hear over and over again, and uh, it, it would be heartbreaking, except these conversations are taking place over a table filled with nutritious, bountiful food, vegetables, fruits of every kind, food staples, and, and we're watching people um, overcome this hardship together. So the focus for us, the takeaway really, isn't that there's an increased suffering that we're all experiencing and that we're all exposed to, but that we're seeing the resiliency of a community and we're seeing a new set of resources and relationships that are being recognized through this difficult time. So all in all, I think that we're going to be left stronger. I think that people are going to be left more hopeful. Um, They're going to be less stressed about how they're going to be dealing with long-term concerns Uh, affecting economy, health, uh, justice, um, and and access, and and also how they will be able to deal with those concerns um, on a momentary basis when faced with moments of of great great challenge like this pandemic. You know, I think the pandemic is going to be with us for quite a while. I think it's been with us long enough already. (laughs) Right, right. But since everything is spiking, um, I think it's going to be at least, at least until springtime. So we're looking at a winter that's going to have people suffering from, you know, deprivation and stuff. Do you think... Go ahead. I think that th- there was a program. Uh, it was like, um, uh, you know how they do uh, at a governmental level, they do sort of these research analysis 
programs like uh, sometimes they have like war games or they prepare for any potential eventuality. One of the things that they our government tested for, and I could be totally wrong here, but I think it was back in 2001, so almost 20 years ago, they tested for the eventuality of a pandemic of some kind uh, dealing with a situation sort of like what we have. And the name of that program, and, and you know, any of your listeners can check, uh, check online. The information about it is public. It's very informative. And it was called, uh, I believe it was called Operation Dark Winter. And uh, it, it's funny because you hear sort of the buzz term, dark winter happening a lot now. People are saying, oh, you know, we're heading into this long, dark winter. And I think that we're mm-hmm. seeing a lot of, we're seeing a lot of uh, the things that were planned for and the things that, uh, that were sort of investigated at that time playing out in real time in real life. And when you're looking at things at, a, at like a, a, a macro scale, the concerns for like at a state level, you know, we all know what's going on with the New York state uh, mandates that are, are changing. And the reason that they're, they're fluctuating so much is because they're trying to stay as fluid as possible, in my perspective, to, to stay as open as possible, but to stay as, as uh, agile as they can to also tighten up when and where needed to attempt to curb the spread of this because they're looking at hospital beds. They're looking at right. the ICU. They're looking at total percentages of, you know, saturation of available resources to deal with things. And when we get past a certain point, they're like, okay, we have to take immediate and decisive action to be able to stay within, like, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a range with which we can still continue to operate. But what we need to see is that kind of analytical approach to systemic poverty, divestment, and access to resources in communities like the West Hill and many communities within the city of Albany and within the state of New York. Because if we took to task analyzing the cause and effect relationship between all the apparatus that affect the day-to-day life of our neighbors, I think that we would come off with more programs that bring about community-level sustainability, community-level production of resources like food, and making sure that our most vulnerable people truly have access. And I said it before, and I'll say it again, because I think that what we're seeing uh, as neighbors, just as you know, residents of the city of Albany, and at an organizational level, I think we're starting to... Uh, uncover some of these truths just by virtue of this experience, even though it may not have been in a calculated way, we're starting to see who is slipping through the cracks. Where are the communities, where are the families and the individuals that are not being reached by the current service networks that, uh, that intend to see no one go hungry, that intend to see no one be homeless, that intend to, uh, Uh, vest upon those in need the resources that they require to be able to live a just, happy, and healthy existence. So when, you know, we just had a conversation yesterday with some city officials 
Um, and, and we did get a visit from the mayor at the market whose support and solidarity uh, we could not have done this without. And one of the things that we were all discussing was, hey, you know what? There shouldn't be this level of need. So now that it's being demonstrated that we have so many people who uh, are going without and that our current mechanisms to reach them are, are failing in certain ways, uh, whether small or great, it helps us really laser focus in and, and, and isolate new approaches for community health equity and resource management, allocation of resources, and inclusion uh, for, for community members to help design a new system that should benefit people better going forward. So my takeaway is that this is building hope, it's building new capacity, and it's giving us a new opportunity to grow as a community, even though the hardship is very difficult. And the price that we paid as a, as a community and as a society it can never be underemphasized. At least there is a silver lining here that we can all uh, benefit from as we go through this process. When, when did you personally realize the impact that COVID was going to make on your, on your endeavors? Um, I was in a meeting, it was about three years ago when we were first getting started. And, uh, I, I, I think that it was, um, um, I, it might've been Mr. Robinson at the, uh, uh, goodness gracious. I don't know if it was the, 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 the recreation department or something that dealt with youth services. We had a meeting with a couple of people and just mm -hmm. listening to the feedback of people who live in our community and work to serve the needs of folks in our community. And what they were saying was, uh, you know, uh, in reference to the current political situations going on and, and, you know, some, some worries and concerns about that. What they were saying was we cannot depend on programs that serve our community's needs to be there when we need them because uh, because what we're seeing happen at a federal level can affect us at a state level. It can affect us at a community level. And um, the concerns about the sustainability, the longevity, or the performance, really the access to those resources seemed, even if just it was a fear, seemed to be something that was a, a, of a preeminent concern. And the greatest piece of feedback that we got out of that meeting was for people to produce their own food helps alleviate the concerns about whether or not they're going to be able to get access to nutritional resources through programs that serve them now. And we need to build that resiliency as a community and at a community level. So we were looking at the importance of these programs the Albany Victory Gardens and the programs that are contained within from the very onset of the project. So we were preparing essentially for COVID-19 three years ago. And it was at that, that time that we had a clear understanding of the, of the need and uh, of the function of our programs. So when COVID hit, it didn't take you by surprise. We immediately went into action. And I think that we owe uh, that most to 
Well, I, I don't want to just say our, our, our garden committee president, Mitch, but certainly Mitch speaking for and conveying the voices of the other members of the garden committee, uh, the urban farmers in the Westdale neighborhood, uh, already understanding the need in a very personal way, crafting programs that could be immediately implemented to, in a, in a very agile and pragmatic way, serve the needs of, of their neighbors. You know, this pandemic produce pickup market was a conception of our community gardeners. This wasn't some from some, you know, uh, higher up at some organization because our project doesn't really function like that. We're just neighbors working together, serving the needs of our community. And um, if it wasn't for Mitch and the other community gardeners, the ability for this project to stay so, uh, so limber and so focused on real needs and solutions would not have been there. Uh, our success this year in responding to COVID is entirely owed to our garden committee team. So what you do here in Albany, do you, do you know if it's replicated in other parts of the state or other parts of the country? Well, Victory Gardens are something that goes back a long time. And, uh, you know, they, they haven't always been seen in the best light. But certainly, uh, in general, the idea of working together as a community to overcome our hardships, uh, to help lift each other up through times of great need, is it's an American value. And really, it's a human value. So programs like this of all uh, uh, types and varieties are definitely happening in our city, around our state, and around our country, and really around the world. Um, th there's a lot of other uh, organizations, in fact, that we've partnered with to serve the needs of Albany City residents and residents of the West Hill community, uh, our neighbors, as we've gone through COVID-19. So you saw people show up, Cynthia. You saw organizations that are, are, are mired in concerns of funding and oftentimes competing for resources. You saw people put down that, that playbook and, and just become human and come to the table together. Uh, you know, Paul Kane, uh, who's now the executive director at the Red Bookshelf, uh, major player in bringing together uh, community members, community stakeholders, and organizations. Uh, Eva Bass from Bridge the Gap, huge, huge proponent for cooperation and really defining the ways in which we can work together as organizations. Uh, Jordan Gigliardi um, from uh, Grateful Villages, uh, really blew everybody's mind and finding ways to partner together to develop resources to serve those in need. I mean, uh, that guy, together with Eva and the Albany Troy Lions Club, boy, I'd be really remiss if I didn't mention them. Uh, they came together to create a program that got thousands of bottles of hand sanitizer out to the most at-risk people in our community um, in a way that a larger organization may have struggled with because of the, the proximity that they have and, and being really community members, it allowed us to work together to, to, to meet the need. I, I'm so impressed 
with all the organizations and my community, and I'm grateful, and I'm emboldened, because I feel like if this is what we can do to react to a momentary, temporary um, obstacle, like the constraints coming from COVID-19, what can we do if we take a look at the policies, um, institutional, economic divestment from our communities, education, uh, racial inequality, social justice issues? What if we turn around and we look at those things like the viruses that they are and say, how can we work together to abolish them and overcome them and create a new modality and create new solutions. We've seen now that change is possible, that it's within the realm of possibility, and that, in fact, we can do it when we work together. And we've learned how to work together in a new way. I, I'm really excited to see what's going to happen in the future um, and, and how this network of caring and capable individuals can operate, how we can leverage the strengths and skills that are already present in our neighborhood groups and meet the real challenges that we face as a community and as a society. You know, one of the things that uh, people think about is we're experiencing apathy right now. Do you find apathy within your group? It sounds like you've got a really vibrant community of people who are willing to help other people. Yeah, apathy. Um, I, I'm going to have to ask my wife here. I don't think apathy lives on our block. What do you, what do you think? I mean, I think apathy uh, within our community that we're working with doesn't exist, you know, but I think apathy is something that happens when it's like a trauma response, and I think we are experiencing that as a people. Um, people need to turn off a little bit to be able to deal with today's intensities and things that just keep going on back to back. But um, as I see the community working together, um, being there to support each other emotionally and, you know, in any other way that they can offer, um, people, people let their guard down, and they open up, and they feel the warmth of like family and friends and people that care about them it's a safe place and yeah you see the apathy you know it just it dies off and people become totally alive and awake and ready to live and interact and, and help their their neighbor who is becoming their family yeah there's two people that come to mind right off the top of my head there's a a, a, Jama a jamaican couple and they take food from our, our market, they bring it home, they cook hot meals out of it, and then they bring it back and distribute it to the people in line and to the community volunteers that, that are working at, at the stand. You know, uh, there, there's a community police officer, and I'm not sure what the name they give those guys nowadays is, whatever that particular detail is, but he's Officer Steve Silver. And uh, this... This person who is, you know, you know, the narrative would tell you that, okay, he's, he's a police officer. He doesn't live in the community. You know, he's going to have this certain approach. But he comes in at least two or three times a week, and we're only there four days. He gets behind the desk at the market, and he 
feeds the people in the community. He packs the bags. He lifts people up. He makes people laugh. And he joins in the, in the, in the chain of support uh, as if he had lived there his entire life because there's a human element that, that binds us together. And when you see that in the faces of the people that you're working with, all of the titles and all, all of the separations really melt down. You say apathy, we're seeing the total opposite. In fact, we're seeing people from outside the community. Uh, McCarroll's, the, the village deli from out in Delmar, uh, they, they raised up, I don't know, about 30 or 40 uh, uh, Thanksgiving meals and brought them down just to stand in solidarity with the community. Now you're talking about communities with different racial makeups, communities with different economic makeups coming together. I, I've never seen something so beautiful in my life. Uh, Greg, we're out of time, but I'd love to have you back on Focus on Albany. Your story is inspiring. So real quick, can you uh, give us your contact information for anybody who wants to help, uh, help your, your, your endeavor? Sure. Uh, the name of the project is the Albany Victory Gardens. And you can find out more about what's happening on a day-to-day basis by checking out our Facebook page uh, by that name, Albany Victory Gardens. You can send us a message there if you want to communicate to anyone who is experiencing a hardship uh, that, that you think we may be able to help with. We're here to extend ourselves in any way that we can. Uh, our resources are limited, but anything that we can do to help connect people with the resources they need um, is always a pleasure. We have a lot of people in our community group that, that are there for you. We're open Monday through Thursday from noon until 4. Please come by. Uh, right now we have some tables with some clothes and some gifts for people who need, um, who, who need clothing or warm clothing. And the name of the, the organization behind this project is the Eden's Rose Foundation. And you can check out the Eden's Rose Foundation on Facebook and donate there to our pandemic produce market. Thank you, Greg. We'll talk again. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and have a great day. Bye-bye.